I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a good week. This week, we are talking about do-overs, which is something all of our guests on the show have taken on in one form or another. So let's pick things up on stage with me and Elena Passarello at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland. We've got a really fun show for you this week. Uh... Do-overs are a really big part of being a kid. Yes. Too. Like it's a, one of the main things you think about. Like if you're in the like you're on the playground and you're like trying to do some kind of hopscotch yeah. or other challenge, but it's not going well, you will go, uh, do over. Yeah. And there's it's like a law that doesn't exist as much in adulthood, but right. as a kid, the do-over principle is is bond. Yes. I didn't think about that, but that's totally. But true. then there's also always that player hater, that one kid that was I called no do-overs. Yeah. It's like no front seats, no back seats. Exactly. Whatever, I hated dude. that kid. Yeah. You were. <laughs> I needed a lot of do-overs as a kid. <laughs> I need a lot of do-overs as an adult. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, uh, but I, I feel like it has also informed how I've kind of lived my life, this idea that I could like, hey, if something doesn't turn out, it's fine. I'll just take a do-over on that. Like, I have a lot of tattoos. Yeah. They're cool. <laughs> One of them used to have my ex-wife's name on it. <laughs> and I got this tattoo when we were not even yet married. What? We had been dating for like four months. <laughs> and I mostly got her name put on there because I was already getting a horseshoe tattooed on my arm. And the tattoo artist offered to throw in a name. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I felt like I couldn't pass on the deal. I had her name put on there. And then I showed it to her, and she was horrified because <laughs> we had not been dating long enough to do that. But my thought at the time was, I don't know. If it doesn't work out. I'll figure something out. Tattoos, it's hard to imagine the do-over situation that involves it. You know, it's not like you're golfing and you're like, mulligan. Like, the thought that was in your head that allowed you to go, I could reverse this. Yeah, but I did reverse it. That's the whole thing. Oh, what did you do? I had it removed later. After this person became my wife and then became my ex-wife, <laughs> a subsequent person I was dating said, I don't love you having their name on your arm. <laughs> I was like, okay, I knew this day would come. 
So I went to the like the tattoo removal place. They give you a little shot of lidocaine okay. to numb the area. They pass a laser over it. It gets a little bit, um, you know, um, scabby. Okay. And you come back in a few months. They do it again, and pretty soon you don't have the tattoo anymore. So what's there now? My daughter's name. Ah! Well <laughs> she done. was medium on it when she saw it, by the way. But <laughs> less horrified than my ex-wife, but not totally stoked. Um, Did you ever hear that story of Johnny Depp's tattoo that he... Yeah, he, Wino Forever. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he had Winona Forever because he was dating the actor Winona Ryder, but then when they broke up, he changed it to Wino Forever, which doesn't seem like a big upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to me like that would be the thing that I would have to do in order to get like a name tattoo. Imagine something that you could do with the name if it didn't work out. Like a plan B. Right, right. So so if somebody's name could not be turned into anything else, I'd be like, no tattoo for you. Well, this is what I wanted to talk to you about because when we were talking about my tattoos and my other sort of things that I get myself into that I figure, whatever, I'll just fix it if it's a problem. <laughs> you were saying to me, you are like the opposite yeah, version. The, yeah, you're, if you're 10, I'm zero. I have no tattoos. Uh, I've been with the same man for 15 years, but we are not married. Uh, no pressure, honey. Uh, <laughs> and uh, no kids. And when we bought our first house uh, almost to the day three years ago, it was such a big ultimatum -y, you know, no turning back now thing that I, I, I wouldn't walk in the door of the house like a week or two weeks into getting the keys. And he had bought this like lovely barbecue dinner the day that we closed and we were going to like eat it on the kitchen and this kind of like wonderful, you know, and I, we had to eat it like on the porch outside the house because I was having such a panic attack at, about how big this decision was. What do you think is animating that kind of behavior for you? Like, what are you afraid is going to happen? You're not going to get a do-over? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, because there, there's it feels so irreparable. I was going to ask you, what motivates you to think that, I mean, is it just optimism and pessimism? Like, I'd or... say alcohol plays a role. Okay. <laughs> in a lot of these decisions. <laughs> I don't know. I just kind of figure, I mean, and of course there are exceptions to this, but I just sort of figure most stuff can be undone at some point. And it's been the case for you. Like so far. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think it's a better way to live, Burbank. I really do. I think my way, you just kind of, like the end game for me is going to be me like in a corner of like an antiseptic room with no tattoos. Like... <laughs> Drinking insure or something? I don't know. Like some, I'll just. <laughs> I think I think you've got the the the, the better end of the spectrum uh, for no do over situation. I do think it's weird that you you feel like uh, if you die without any tattoos, you haven't lived moss. <laughs> like I, that yeah. could also represent making some good life decisions for you. And maybe it's control. Like I don't know if I'm in control enough of myself to alter myself. You know. But you're like, if hey! you did get a tattoo, what would it be? Uh, it would be the Livewire logo. <laughs> <laughs> we need to set up a deal. If someone gets the Livewire logo tattooed, we got to give them like, I don't know, 20% off a t-shirt or something. Yeah. Something big. All right. We have a guest who, who wrote a book about, uh, in, in sort of a way, trying to get a do-over in terms of understanding her parents, uh, both of whom uh, died when she was relatively young. Uh, this book started as an anonymous Tumblr blog of correspondences between her parents that she had found. Uh, it's now a book. It's called My Dead Parents. Let's bring her out now. It's Anya Yurchishin. <laughs> Anya, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, you grew up in Boston. Both of your parents were were educated. They were they were interesting, engaged people. They would they would travel internationally, um, and yet 
there was a lot of stuff about your childhood that was, we would say, suboptimal. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you growing up in Boston in the house you grew up in? My father was a first-generation Ukrainian immigrant. He was very strict. It was a severe disciplinarian, and that was really hard on me, uh, particularly when it came to issues such as homework. I was not a great student, and that kind of drove him crazy, and he communicated that in not the best of ways. And my mother had a very different personality. She was very effusive. She was very warm and accepting. But I felt like I really wanted more of a referee between my father and I. So I I was angry at her because I felt like she didn't protect me enough from him. You didn't think that they had ever really been in love. Why did you think that as a kid growing up? Um, a few reasons. They didn't really seem to like each other that much. Um, you know, they, my father was very absorbed in his work. My mother seemed to want a lot more attention from him than she seemed to get. Then I, because I didn't like my father that much, I think I just projected my experience. And I thought, well, I don't like him. Yeah, you, she probably doesn't like him either. And then I would think, how did we all end up here? Like, <laughs> what, what's going on? And then even though, you know, my mother was as accomplished as my father, he didn't really seem to take her that seriously. So, you know, when I'd kind of watch them interact, um, you know, from my very, very limited child's perspective, um, I just thought, oh, yeah, this, this, this doesn't seem super affectionate or warm. I'm not really sure how these people ended up together. So your dad passed away. Uh, when you were a teenager, he, you were told he died in a, in a car crash in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And then your mom passed away some years later. And you, as you went through cleaning uh, the home that you grew up in, you sort of found some stuff that really started to change your perception of like, how your parents actually felt about each other. What, what happened? So uh, my mom died when I was 32. And I walked into her, her home, which is the home I grew up in, in Boston. And I was really feeling ready for it. Um, my mother, after my father passed away, um, became a really serious alcoholic. So uh, my sister and I had kind of been anticipating her death for years. And so when the task of cleaning out her house fell on my shoulders, I just thought, all right, let's do this. Like, I'm actually, I'm ready to, to start anew. Um, and I was going through my mother's study, which is where she kind of kept her most important papers and sentimental objects. And I found this pile of love letters that my parents had written each other and it covered almost their entire 30-year relationship you know when they started dating when my mother was an undergraduate at University of Chicago she met my father then he was a graduate student um, you know covering dating their engagement um, and then letters they wrote to each other you know when they were separated by travel and I sat there reading them and I just thought these can't be real like someone planted them um, this camp, they're beautifully written. Yeah. They're gorgeous. And, you know, as I said, my mother was, you know, very open and articulate. Um, and her letters, you know, are nice. But the ones from my father are just so lyrical and vulnerable. And he talks so openly about the pain of being separated from her and what he's willing to do to, to marry her. It's like Neruda or something. Yeah, yeah. I no, mean, it's, it's really... And amazing. Them, yes, and some of them get a little... They're ish too. Yeah, <laughs> which that's, I mean, fine, good for them. Um, but I, I really sat there and I felt like I was being confronted by this story that totally deviated from everything I believed was true. And I realized not only was I wrong about, you know, my parents' relationship, I was in a lot of ways wrong about who they'd been as people. And I had kind of failed to progress past my kind of childhood impressions of them. Uh, and, and here was proof that I was just wrong and that, my, you know, what I understood was so limited. 
Wow. Uh, well, that discovery really kind of launched you on this whole journey of, of finding out more about their lives and, and how your father actually died and a bunch of stuff I want to talk about right after this break. We will be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well. And just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We are at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon this week. Uh, we're talking about do-overs. Uh, we have Elena Passarello here. I'm Luke Burbank. And over there is Anya Yurchishin, uh, whose new book is uh, My Dead Parents. It it talks about the discovery that you made that your parents, who you thought were sort of in a loveless uh, marriage, really, uh, after they'd passed away, you found these love letters between them and realized they had had this whole life that you sort of didn't get as a kid. Um, you started going around and interviewing people who knew them. What did you find out about your parents? I mean, I found out so many incredible things and also just a lot of basic things. You know, I realized that um, he was a big nationalist. Ukraine was very important to him, but I only knew the most basic details of his life. I didn't know the village he had been born in, why exactly his family had to flee Ukraine, the places he'd lived, um, really what it might have been like to be an immigrant um, many times over <laughs> before you even get to America. And then with my mother, you know, a lot of, uh, I kind of always considered her life as being marked somewhat by tragedy, but even more tragedy than I had realized. Um, she had been molested when she was younger. She had been, um, she was a breech baby, so her clavicle had to be broken when she was born, and so she couldn't be held for a few months. Um, it was really an, an incredible amount of pain um, for any person to experience. And then my own experience of sitting with her pain and trying to think, Oh right, you had you're you're so much more <laughs> than I realized, and you deserve a lot of compassion. Yeah, what was that like for you to to sort of have to really rethink these two people? Really painful, you know. Like I said, when I went into my mom's house, I was ready to be done, um, and that would have been so much easier. I would have had my story, my version of the truth, keep it moving. Um, but actually, being open to the idea that my parents were different, you know, were totally different people than I had assumed. Um, it led me down, you know, a really difficult path because when I started, I said, okay, I want to know everything. I don't understand who these people were. I want to know what happened and why. You know, how did they become the people that I ended up meeting? 
And that meant interviewing family, friends, coworkers, lovers, and revealing so much pain and then sitting with it for years as I wrote about it, tried to make sense, tried to synthesize information. So your your father uh, passed away in Ukraine. He had gone there. He'd been hired to work in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were told that, that, that he died in an automobile accident. But there was always some sort of murkiness around that. And then you started to really look into it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're giving away something from the book, but do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, when I was 16, my father uh, was killed in a car crash. He was working in Ukraine. He had been working there on and off for a few years. And when we re- received the news, it was very easy to believe. I mean, I had been to Ukraine the roads were and still are horrible. People drive without headlights um, because they can't afford them. Uh, people abandon their cars in the street. People drive drunk. People drive without eyeglasses that they really sorely need. I mean, car accidents are real and are a fact of life there. Um, however, some uh, more savvy Ukrainians hear a car crash and they immediately think murder um, because that's how it goes there. And so that there had been this kind of whisper Um, But honestly, I was very relieved that my father died. I mean, the second I found out that he passed away, I felt like I had a chance to kind of blossom as a human being. He had been kind of such a negative presence in my life. So, And then when I started researching the book, uh, it became really important to me to go to Ukraine and to learn more about uh, both the country, because it had been so important to my father and, you know, in some ways kind of became a priority for him over his family, and to learn what I could about this car crash. Uh, and, you know, the whispers were correct. My father was murdered. Um, and I found that out after uh, interviewing his driver, who's the only person who survived the car accident in his car. Pretty suspicious. Uh, and then I ended up hiring a PI, uh, this wonderful woman um, named Gaina, nine and a half fingered, made me buy her uh, purple <laughs> sneakers for Christmas. Um, she was hardcore. What uh, happened to the half a finger? If you want to ask her, go ahead. I am not about to. (laughs) (laughs) And you wouldn't want to. Um, And I, you know, it was so terrible to learn this information for many reasons. Uh, You know, my father had been targeted. We don't know exactly why. He had been there as a venture capitalist. The the theory is he had chosen to uh, fund this one company. And since capitalism was new in Ukraine... You know, people were not used to having to compete. So this other company who, that made the same product thought, nope, that doesn't work for us. Um, and, but my father was with two young coworkers, Ukrainians who had young families who he was grooming. They ended up being killed as well. And I will say that, you know, I learned so much about both of my parents, but uh, one of the most wonderful things I learned from this research was actually that my father, who I had seen as kind of my enemy number one, even after he had died, um, that we have so much in common, that we're kind of relentlessly driven, that my father was so much more creative than I realized. And I felt so ashamed to think my reaction when I was 16 is I don't care. I don't care how or, or, or why he died. I feel like a, a, an element of this book, and we've sort of been alluding to it already, is this idea of uh, if one is obligated to grieve for mm-hmm. your family members when they pass away. Even the title of the book, My Dead Parents, I, I know you got some pushback from the publisher because mm-hmm. it just sounded maybe glib or something. Yeah. I mean, has that been something that you've really struggled with or had to deal with, this idea of, like, w- were you sad enough uh, and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Um, you know, even though my father's death felt like a relief when I was 16, I knew better than to say that out loud. One, I didn't want to insult other people's pain, um, but I knew that that was wrong, or at least socially or culturally unacceptable. 
And kind of something similar happened when my mom passed away. You know, all my wonderful, wonderful friends or even coworkers were really ready to take care of me. But my mom had been sick for so long. She drank to the extent that she had brain damage, she had trouble walking. To keep her alive for myself seemed selfish. Um, if I could, you know, unwind her life 10 years previously and get her to take another path, I would have taken that. Um, but anyone who's dealt with an addict for a long time, especially one who doesn't want to get better, they're a huge source of anxiety and pain and the roller coaster of trying to support them and not support them and how do you protect yourself. It, it didn't leave me with a lot to miss. Um, and I think part of this project was finding a way to love my parents that, you know, for whatever reason, they hadn't allowed me to feel on my own. That was so present in the book. And I think it's like a great learning experience that we have to learn. There's no timer on grief, right? And grief can be a project as much as it can be a response. And especially if you're 16, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole, the, so this started as a, a Tumblr, is that right? Yeah. It's the, the beginning Remember of this those? project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny to say it like it's this like ancient word, like Victrola. You know, it was like three <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah why, did you, why did you think to start putting this on, the, their letters on Tumblr and it was anonymous at first, right? Oh gosh, thank God it was anonymous. Well, I'm, um, you know, a fiction writer as well. And so I... I'd never written a lot of nonfiction, and I guess I had that writerly instinct. You know, I was reading these letters. I was so confused. I had so many questions that I wanted to ask, and I felt, you know, for a long time, I felt defensive. Like, how how could you be those people <laughs> here and not with me? And how did this happen? Um, and because I'm a writer, I need to not just talk about things at length. I need to process them through writing. So a lot of it was just kind of comparing what I found in the letters to my own experience, and keeping it anonymous was both a way to protect myself from my family um, and Google, because uh, I was also teaching at the time, but also it gave me kind of this space where I could kind of experiment and say, let me have these feelings that might not be socially acceptable um, in a place where there's only so much judgment that can be handed down. Anya, you're Chishin. The book is My Dead Parents. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you so much. <laughs> Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, who asks, what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snow drifts and husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire, and of course we have lots of guests from uh, all over the country and the world that come to be on Livewire, but of course our local scene here in Portland, right here in the Rose City, is also full of incredibly interesting individuals doing things that we would like you all to know about. Uh, we call them our new fascinating friends. We're going to meet one right now. Please welcome Lindsay E. Murphy to Livewire. Hi. Hello, Lindsay. Welcome to Livewire. Thanks. You host a YouTube channel called The Fab Lab with Crazy Aunt Lindsay. I sure do. What happens 
on the Fab Lab. So the Fab Lab is a kid science show that takes everyday science concepts and turns them into fabulous DIY projects. And the way I like to contextualize it is if um, Martha Stewart and Bill Nye the Science Guy had a little extra flavor. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get into this? Um, It's kind of a long story that I will attempt to abbreviate. By the time I was like 25, I was director of business development at at this, you know, ad agency and doing all this stuff and woke up one day and realized I was painfully miserable. And so I quit my job and I moved into a friend's pool house. (laughs) And all of my friends at the time were these like super amazing, like type A moms that fixed everything. So they were like, move to the pool house. You know, here's a car and here's your schedule. You're going to take care of everyone's children. And so that's what I did. I babysat. And very quickly, I learned how great I was with children, how much fun they were, how like ready they were to like learn things and do things and just like figure the world out and just all their questions. And so like in my free time, because, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. I'm like coming up with all of these little projects that will help kids like their homework better. I mean, literally, like it was legitimately how how it all happened. Um, And then I was moving about a year later, I was moving out of the town. So they threw me a little going away party. And one of the parents was like, all the projects that you came up with are so great and the kids are going to miss you. Have you ever heard of YouTube? Um, and this <laughs> You're is like, like, no, I'm 25. What's YouTube? <laughs> totally. Well, but to be fair, this is like 2009 when, oh, okay. you know, YouTube was just a few years old. I don't even think, you know, leave Britley alone. I don't think that even came out ah. yet. Um, so, you know, have you ever heard of YouTube? Yep, I've heard of it. He's like, you know, you should put some videos, make some videos so the kids can see you. And I was like, hmm, that's an idea. What are, what are some of the projects? Give us a sense for like yeah, what kind so, of things happen yeah, on your YouTube so channel. I do things like, um, has anybody here ever like homemade butter, like made butter out of heavy cream? So that's actually a really scientific process um, that teaches or rather explains molecules and protein structure. So what I would do is like make butter so kids can learn about it. But then we take the butter and turn it into like really delicious buttercream icing mm. and then we like ice cupcakes that must be one of the more popular experiments it is children. one of our is one of our all, all the projects people love everything but that is for sure one of the one of the more popular ones so you're not you you don't so much have a science background as you realized you really vibed with kids well right and 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 then also i know you're big on stem education and the idea of like letting kids know particularly girls particularly uh, young girls of color know that science can be for them. Mm-hmm. Are you able to see that you're having an impact in that area and make you hearing from people oh, that might yeah. not traditionally be interested in science and getting into that world? Oh, yeah. I get tweets from parents all the time. Um, I get Facebook messages pretty much daily of kids, p- parents being like, or even grandparents, this is what my daughter did or this is what my granddaughter did. And that's, it's really, it's just really fun. And you just kind of see the array of the diverse faces that are connecting with what you're doing. Um, and I don't know that it's necessarily that, you know, I didn't start this like, I'm going to get girls and women of, you know, people of color into science. I just did what came naturally and really treated kids like kids, regardless of your socioeconomic background, regardless of what you look like, this is for you. It's interesting. It can be fun and you're allowed to be interested in it. Um, And I think when you approach things like that, where it's like you are just a person that has the capacity for interest and curiosity versus I'm going to give this to you because you're a girl. I'm going to give this to to you because you're a person of color. I think that can be equally alienating. Whereas if you just Mm -hmm. cast a wide net, um, and make sure that you're doing something that's really fun that you're passionate about. 
who is attracted to it is going to be attracted to it. Uh, you're doing this for your job now. Yes. Uh, and just uh, this week, we announced uh, a crowdfunding campaign where everyday people, as well as um, people who you know have marketing dollars, can contribute to the next uh, 24 episodes of the show. So I'm very excited. Fifty thousand dollars in 30 days. I'm very nervous. Ah. I think it's going to work. <laughs> if it doesn't, I have a fail-proof system at the casino. <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain it to you after the show. Lindsay sure. E. Murphy, thank you so much for coming thank on LiveWare. Thanks for being thank our you. fascinating friend. This is LiveWire Radio. This week we are talking about do-overs, and we asked the live audience here at the Alberta Street Pub to tell us about something in their life that they wish they could do over. I think this is an interesting question, Elena Passarello, but I'm also worried that things are going to get realer than we want them to. This is a dark pile. Yeah, this I was going to say. Yeah. All right. So what do, what do you got there? You've collected up uh, some of these responses. Well, George has a response that I was thinking about too. That it, it plays directly into what you were just saying. There's another way to look at do-overs. You want sometimes you want to do something over because it didn't go well, but uh, sometimes you want to do something over because it was so great. Right. You want to live in that moment yeah. again. Okay. George uh, would like to do over two careers, separate careers. One, my pole vaulting career. And my career as an altar boy, I wouldn't do them differently. I just re-enjoy them. Wow, that is yeah. a um, that's a life well lived, yeah, George. Well done. Uh, here's one from Sarah. Sarah uh, wishes Sarah could do over junior high worship band. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. I was in the uh, worship band. Tell me, I don't know what group. this is. Quick worship <laughs> story. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> When I was, as many of you know, when I was 17, I, I had a daughter, uh, as I like to say, because I felt like it was time. Uh, and I had moved to a new church, uh, like about midway through uh, my daughter's gestation. And so these kids at the new church didn't know that I had a baby on the way. And I was the worship song leader. And we went away for a, a church camp out. And uh, a, a day or two before we went to this camp out, my daughter was born. And so I felt like at some point these kids are going to find out that I have a child. <laughs> so the time that I chose to break it to them was midway through the worship service. <laughs> I just stopped. We finished up. We wrapped up whatever song it was. And I said, well, <clears throat> I'd like to tell you guys something. I became a father two days ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there was a girl who I kind of was sweet on named Jeanette. And all her friends just looked at her like, did you know about this? <laughs> <laughs> to this day... All the people who were there talk about it as one of the most memorable moments of their entire wow. life. Wow, good job. It's truly shocking <laughs> for everybody involved. It's too bad you couldn't have worked it into one of the worship songs. Like, holy, <laughs> holy, holy. That'd be more like, hold a... it, hold it, hold it, or wear a condom. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I don't think that light is Wait out yet. Wait till you're ready. 17's too young. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, all right. One more. This one is from Judy. Every winter, I forget to put my gloves on before I leave the house, so my bare skin hand sticks to my doorknob if it is really cold. I should Ouch. note that Judy says she listens to this show from Fairbanks, Alaska, so this is why the doorknob is so cold at Judy's house. Uh, I constantly wish I could have a do-over and put my gloves on before leaving. This would save my skin. I feel like this is an achievable goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like being a pole vaulting altar yeah. boy. No, dare to dream. <laughs> 
All right, this is Livewire. Our comedian this hour has appeared on Conan and also at festivals all over the country. Uh, he's written for Jon Stewart, and now we are very excited to have him here with us at the Alberta Street Pub. Please welcome Robbie Slovic to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you. This is awesome. This is cool. It's good to be here. Uh, if someone told me, if someone was like, Robbie, uh, Describe the like most difficult situation for comedy. I'd open with, all right, like first of all, I want four people behind me staring dead-eyed out in front of them the whole time. <laughs> if on the same show as me, we could have someone relitigate the early death of their parents. <laughs> and come to terms with their posthumous humanity. That would be great too. <laughs> And finally, if I could be the least talented person on the show, uh, that would be ideal. And uh, we did it, guys. We knocked it out of the park. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, you guys ever feel like life is too long? Is that just me? We're stuck here for 100 years with nothing specific to do? And you got to find something to do every single day because you can't do nothing. That's why you guys are at a podcast taping in the middle of the day, you know? <laughs> if I could just sit on a couch and stare at the wall, I would. But you can't. We keep... <laughs> like, I'm 35. I've seen all of Netflix. <laughs> There's nothing left for me. I watched the sushi documentary. You know, like, I don't know what else to do with my time. Just the, We keep coming up with dumber stuff to do just to pass the time. Like, just the fact that bowling exists proves that life is too long. Like at some point, someone was like, I don't know, man, roll this at that, you know? Sometimes when I talk this way, people are like, you sound depressed, maybe you need therapy, maybe you need church. Church? Are you kidding? You know what they're selling? An afterlife, more life, no thanks. I'm not enjoying the party, I don't wanna go to the after party for eternity. No, what do you do with eternity? Hulu's not going to split the difference, you know? It's very tough. I'm tired of it. And I'm not a fighter. Like, I'm not a fighter in any sense of the word. You know, there's some people where, like, a doctor will tell them, like, sir, you'll never walk again. And they're like, watch me, you know? Then it was like a montage, and a year later, they win the Boston Marathon. Like, I'm not that guy. The second a doctor tells me, sir, you'll probably never walk again, I'm like, what are my wheelchair options? Like, what colors do they come in? Can we put stickers on it? I'd be like, sir, I said probably. Good enough for me. I'm not beating this, you know? <laughs> Put me on that chair and wheel me out of here. I am not a fighter. Sometimes I'll be hugging my girlfriend and she'll say to me, I feel so safe in your arms. What? Why? <laughs> I am horrified right now. I'm holding on to you for support. I don't want to do it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being a man. I don't want to do that anymore. It's exhausting. The things that men are into, cool things. Men want to be cow, want to be cowboys. That's a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous word. Like, we're used to the word, like, cowboy. But that, when that word first came out, no way it was anything other than an insult, you know? Like, pick another word. Like, that, we're used to cowboy. Pick another animal. See how ridiculous it sounds. Here come them sheep boys. <laughs> Lamb boys coming through, you know? Pick a cool animal. Leopard boys. Sounds like a dance troupe, you know? <laughs> Once you start dressing a certain way for your hobby, like if I can tell what you're into by the way that you're dressed, you're too into that thing. Stop it. Like your motorcycle will turn on even if you're not dressed like an idiot. Did you know that? 
You don't need a little leather vest with Boy Scout patches on it. <laughs> you guys are a fun crowd, man. <laughs> this is great. You never know what you're walking into anymore because everything is so political right now. Like, we managed to get into a controversy over the national anthem somehow. And no one even asked the bigger question, like, why do countries even have national anthems? Why? Why is every country like a teenage couple? Like, this is our song. We like it because it's about us. Countries don't need theme songs. Especially when you're so uptight about them. Stand up, shut up, take your hat off. Our song is on. <laughs> Calm down, you don't even like the song, you know? Like, you like it because it's your anthem, but you don't like it. Like, when was the last time you put the national anthem on a mixtape? <laughs> you're not bumping it from your car, stop it. And of course you're not, because once you pick a national anthem, it's yours forever. You're stuck with it. We got the Star Spangled Banner. 100 people in this room. Anyone ever used the word spangled before? No. And we take it even further than the national anthem. We have the Pledge of Allegiance. Every day we just make school children profess their loyalty to the country. How thirsty are we? <laughs> How insecure. You wouldn't, you wouldn't accept that of your spouse if they wanted to do wedding vows every morning. Like, no, you psychopath. I told you that I love you. These are kindergartners, six years old. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Like, what is the allegiance of a six-year-old even worth? We're under attack from North Korea. Get your flat jacket on, Skylar. Front lines. You, what do you mean you want your mommy? You took a pledge. My name's Robbie. Thank you guys so much. That's Robbie Slovic here on Livewire. You can find out when Robbie's going to be in a town near you at Robbie Slovic. That's uh, S L O W I K dot com. All right, our next guest is not only a longtime friend of mine, but I have to say, honestly, one of the smartest people. I know he hosts the Slate podcast, The Gist. He's got a new book out called Upon Further Review that imagines a counterfactual history if various sports moments had gone just a little bit differently. Please welcome Mike Pesca to Livewire. Michael, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, this book is, is fascinating. Uh, what does counterfactual history exactly mean? Counterfactual history is undergirding all of sports, and why we keep coming back to sports is the idea of what if. In fact, I think without it, we might not like sports, because if you think about it, there are, I think, 123 professional teams, NHL, NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball, 100 23, and 119 of them end their season on a loss or being eliminated from the playoffs. Mm -hmm. So without what if, without do-overs, without the idea of going back to it and reliving a possibility, we would not find this form of entertainment entertaining. If the Star Wars movies disappointed us as frequently as sports disappoint us, <laughs> there'd be no more Star Wars I movies. don't know if you saw those middle Star Wars they made. So basically all we have as sports fans, unless our team is the one that wins that year, whatever the thing is, all we have is sort of rumination about what could have been. So this is true. This is the fuel for sports. What if is not just the fuel for barroom discussions, but it keeps us coming back. 
Um, but I do find that when the sports fan, the layman, and this is fine, when they engage in what if, what they're really doing is engaging in if only. If only that draft pick had gone better, if only the referee hadn't blown that call. But the two biggest if onlys or what ifs uh, that people give me, one is about Len Bias who died before he got to play on the Celtics. And the other one is what if the Blazers had drafted Michael Jordan? And the answer is then the Blazers would have won a bunch of championships because Michael Jordan's really good. And the Blazers are <laughs> at least a competent or were a competent organization. They they played against him in the finals. They had a good team in the West those years. So where do you go with that? So what I wanted to do was to apply some structure. So I had some principles for what made a good what if. One of them was... Um, ripples, if it led to interesting ripples that are plausible that you might not have imagined, I think that's worth getting into. Another one is if it's almost a Trojan horse of a history lesson. Yes, it seems like a what if, or there are some what if elements, but I'm really teaching you about things that happened that you never knew, and it's an interesting way to capture your mind. Another one is what what if it's one of these um, arguments that, go, that has been going on for the ages, and I can enlist an author to come in and really settle the argument. So Ben Lindbergh talking about pe testing for PEDs and charts and graphs, and he does a great job. And then there was another category, which is what if it had repercussions way beyond sports? I thought that was definitely worth getting into. Hitler and Muhammad Ali. And the last one is what if it's just funny? And if it was funny, you're allowed in. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking to Mike Pesca uh, from The Gist. Uh, his new book is Upon Further Review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History. Uh, let's talk about uh, a couple of the chapters. Um, uh, what if Richard Nixon had been good at football? He wasn't. He right. sucked. Right. He sucked at football. <laughs> he weighed 150-something pounds. He was a backup lineman. Uh, he played on Whittier College, home of the poets. You're fighting poets. Um, <laughs> the rhyme scheme was totally off. And he was a tackling dummy, essentially. And so the thing, the thing about... It's easy to do... By the way, for those who don't know football, that's an official piece of equipment that's yeah. not just besmirching Richard Nixon. He was a dummy at tackling. Right. Right. But it also kind of is. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we were to besmirch... So the chapter in the book is written by Julian Zelizer, who's a uh, Princeton professor. Um, armchair psychology is easy, but it's really hard to avoid the conclusion that the lessons Nixon learned in football stayed with him through life. He had a coach named Coach Newman who told him there is absolutely no valor in losing. You do absolutely anything you need to win. Uh, losers are just losers and there's no redemption for them. Fight, claw, cheat if you must. You do anything to win. So there's Richard Nixon. The other thing is <laughs> he goes through life put upon. He goes through life uh, wanting to be great at something like football or just politics. He's a terrible personal politician. He was un he's the anti-Bill Clinton. He's the anti-Barack Obama. Even, you know, Donald Trump has a personal touch. Nixon was terrible at that. And the last thing about Nixon, and this is what Leon gets into. So there he is at Whittier College, and the poets did fight. But he <laughs> forms, there's an eating club or a fraternity type, organization and only the quarterbacks and running backs and the stars are allowed in and he forms a competitive eating club for the linemen and the lunch bucket guys and the forgotten man his entire playbook that he executed as a football player he re-institutes that when he runs for president and talks about the silent majority wow uh, we got to take a short break here. We're talking to Mike Pesca. The book is Upon Further Review. And when we come back, I, I want to talk about the chapter that, that wonders, what if chess master Bobby Fischer would have actually gotten mental health help? 
So we'll talk about that in a minute. This is Livewire from PRI. We will be right back. Hey, special thanks this episode to Heidi Festin of Bonnie Lake, Washington, and Susan Bunker of Seattle, Washington. Did you know Heidi and Susie are part of the Livewire member community? We call them the League of Extraordinary Listeners, and they generously support this show with a donation each month. We are so appreciative of that because it is the only way that we can do the show. So a huge thanks to Heidi and Susie. Thanks for keeping this thing rolling. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Mike Pesca is with us. He is the host of the GIST podcast from Panoply. Also, he has a new book called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. One of the chapters asks the question, what if Bobby Fischer, the, uh, the, the chess master, what if he would have had uh, mental health help? Because he was somebody who clearly battled some, some, some issues in his life. This is not an unknown thought within the chess community. And wow, there's a chess community. Um... <laughs> So Bobby Fischer, uh, he was probably schizophrenic and he had a crazy fraught life and he was a horrible anti-Semite, but also Jewish, but maybe his actual father wasn't Jewish, but crazy. He was just crazy. So what would happen if he got proper psychiatric help? Uh, He'd have been a happier person. Would he have been a better chess player? Probably. And the argument goes like this. People conflate um, genius and, and insanity way too much. Um, people think that you know Van Gogh was a genius because he was insane, but that's not true. In fact, for the most part, insanity is exhausting. And so, yeah, it's true that he had this skewed look at life, just like it's true that Bobby Fischer would look at a chessboard and try some moves that maybe a quote-unquote sane person wouldn't uh, try. But had he harnessed that, it's still quite possible he could tap into the creative part of his brain and just stop being so exhausted and running himself ragged by attending to you know his mental demons, his inner mental demons. And had that happened, he probably would have had a more sustained career, been a happier person. And, you know, maybe American chess would be in a totally different place too. Can you make the argument for why a non-sports fan, which would be, I'd say, conservatively 99% of public radio listeners, Uh uh, would want to buy this book? Well, first of all, what I wanted to do in casting the 31 chapters was to have totally different tones and totally different styles. And a lot of them are very sportsy for the sports maven. But there's the Jesse Eisenberg chapter and there's there's some absurdist humor. Uh, the last chapter is if what if every great sports movie suddenly burst on the scene in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. So you have Air Bud and you have the guys from <laughs> Bull Durham and Ed the Chimp. So we have many different chapters, many different tones, something for everyone. But, you know, chapter one is about Muhammad Ali and his place is uh, essentially a secular saint. And the argument there is, but for his draft deferment, it creates a crucible in which he proves himself to be um, more than just a loud mouth, or that's how he is perceived at the, at the time. Uh, another chapter is about what if the U.S. boycotts Hitler's Olympics, you know, reverbs, repercussions throughout society. So yeah, I, I think it's a great thought exercise. And I also think that there is a lot of value into realizing that just because history did happen that way, it's not the case that it was preordained, and it's not the case that it had to have happened that way. I will warn people, though, (laughs) the book is a fascinating read, but when you open this door of thinking about how differently so many things, sports, politics, and uh, other, could have gone if not for one small little thing, it does sort of keep you up at night. Yeah, 
Because, I mean, we, we like you said, we feel like somehow the events of this world are predetermined or providential in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's so capricious and random. It's a... In a way, a destabilizing thing to really consider for too long. Yes, it does keep me up, but so do the three podcasts I have and the four that you have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Mike Pesca from The Gist on Slate and the new book, Upon Further Review, thank you so much for being on Livewire. You're welcome. Our musical guest this hour is giving dreamy vintage music a do-over. In that, she's bringing it back. Her new album is Doom Wop. Please welcome the multi-talented prom queen to Livewire. And always dances Someone responsible and bright Oh, oh Maybe I'll be Someone who has grace And a smile on her face Someone who makes you feel alright And naturally she'd never stay at home on Friday nights completely out of sight so what if I wanted to be blonde or shave my head oh 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 what if I wanted to be someone else instead change my name and throw all of my Things into the sea Cause I don't want to be me Oh no
it's all too much to bear I change the color of my hair Will my cares and all my pain Just go washing down the drain Or will I just regret it Feeling shallow and lightheaded and self-absorbed Cause I want to feel so much more And I want to give the world Something more than just a girl Who is trapped inside a heavy head That can't get itself out of bed When it all feels out of reach A little bit of bleach and a magic wand Can turn me To be someone else instead Change my name and throw all of my things into the sea Cause I don't want to be me Oh no That is prom queen right here on Livewire. That's going to do it for our show. Thank you so much to our guests, Mike Pesca, Anya Yurchishin, Robbie Slovic, Lindsay Murphy, and of course, prom queen. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Rob and Carrie Peacock of Portland, Oregon for their support. For more information about the show, how to listen to our podcast, or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello... Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International Dear Livewire, When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 